Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Becky Vivi, and this is Reset. The city of Chicago is looking for more ways to fight the spread of COVID-19. So yesterday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced a new program that aims to expand the city's ability to contact trace. 31 community-based organizations have been selected to hire individuals directly from neighborhoods of high economic hardship to staff our first-ever community-based contact tracing core. Joining us now to talk about that and other COVID-related news around Chicago is the Commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, Dr. Allison Arwady. Dr. Arwady, welcome back to Reset. Thank you. So I want to get to the news about the new contact tracing program. Just to remind folks, earlier this summer, the city subcontracted with the Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership which then subcontracted with these uh, 30 community organizations to then do the recruiting and hiring of contact tracers. I'm wondering why the city set it up this way instead of maybe hiring tracers directly. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons. One is that we really wanted to let this be something that was coming from community. We felt pretty strongly about the community-based organizations themselves doing the hiring, having the responsibility for their staff. This is something we really want to outlive COVID um, and felt that it was important to actually not just hire folks for in a short-term kind of way, but make investments in community. And we felt like using um, organizations that already care a lot about jobs and workforce and development was a really good way to do that. Um, it also means that we recog- you know, we were able to put in place things like benefits, we're able to have part-time options that may not be available directly for city employees. And city, and this is not necessarily a job that will be a forever job. And so we wanted to very much shape it as something that would be a good paying earn as you learn investment because we want these folks to become part of sort of a community-based public health workforce uh, in the long term. So it's an unusual approach, different really than anywhere else across the country that I'm aware of, but it's an opportunity to invest in community, get jobs where they're needed, and fight COVID at the same time. Doing it this way with the subcontracting, has that led to maybe it taking a little bit longer? Has it led to a delay? We planned all along thinking ahead to the fall and winter, knowing that this was potentially going to be a time of some significant surge in cases. And to be very clear, you know, we've been doing contact tracing all along Um, And we've been doing it through the city, right? So we have and will continue to reach out to every case that's diagnosed with COVID-19, regardless of address. Um, You know, I shared metrics yesterday showing that we've been doing that to date. Uh, But really the goal was to transition some of this work uh, into community. It takes longer to do it that way for sure, um, but we, and we knew that, you know, the, the process of the contracting would add some time, but we had planned uh, really thinking ahead to the fall as being, as being this moment because these folks will also offer us the opportunity again to have, you know, no matter what comes in fall and winter, um, the opportunity to do more community-based, you know, education, outreach, and importantly, resource coordination and resource hub coordination. You know, it's a harder way to do it, but this has been our plan and actually our timeline going all the way back to when we first proposed this to the federal government back uh, in the spring. And, uh, 
I'm really excited about it. These jobs, uh, the city says, will be $20 an hour jobs with benefits. And the idea, like you mentioned, is to get people in the pipeline to public health careers. How is the city going to be monitoring that all of these community organizations fill out that mission, follow those directives and actually and actually do hire people at that rate and, and get them into public health careers long term. Yeah, absolutely. And that, this is why we've got a lot of partners involved. So <laughs> Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership, as you probably know, you know, workforce development is absolutely what they do every day. And that's why they were selected, you know, as the, as the lead for this. But we've got Malcolm X College, very specifically, you know, what will this coursework look like? Well, how will we actually plan that out? We've got other partners, including um, University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health. We've got folks from Sinai Urban Health Institute that have a lot of experience in terms of building this community health worker type model, and we'll be monitoring everything. So one of the other pieces that we've done through all this is build a brand new tech platform, which has not been a small lift, um, but we felt really important to be able to have everybody working in the COVID space, whether they're in a community-based organization, whether they're in a healthcare setting, whether they're at the Chicago Department of Public Health, all reporting into a single framework. We'll be able to continue to track metrics. If there's an organization that's having issues in some way, be able to identify that sooner rather than later and make sure that they are meeting the the requirements of the contract. And these are things that are actually built into the contract. They're not just suggestions. They are the earn as you learn and the salaries. And, you know, these these opportunities were part of the uh, original request for proposal that the city put out. Great. So speaking of uh, high tech and contact tracing, I know just on my phone the other day, there's something in the menu now called exposure notifications. <laughs> what is that? And should I turn it on? Oh, goodness. Yeah. So so there has been a lot of advancement, I would say, broadly in a whole lot of apps that are very interested in the tech side of contact tracing. These apps are being used in different ways, in different settings. Uh, you do have to turn them on for any of them to be active. And um, they're designed, I think, particularly if you're in um, a given setting, they can, they can look, for example, if you're in close proximity to people who may have uh, been diagnosed with COVID. I want to be clear that the city of Chicago and our current programming is not using any of these location-based uh, contact tracing programs at the city level. Um, there may be a decision, for example, on a campus or with a university, potentially within you know, a larger employer may decide to use some, some technology like that. Uh, but when you're engaging sort of at the city level, we are not using any of that technology um, at the moment. We are instead really focusing on making sure people you know, have the appropriate information. The CHI COVID coach is how people are able to sign in with, you know, with information and we're able to send out alerts through there. But mm-hmm. you are welcome to explore. I certainly have been exploring a lot of these apps, um, but none of them are actively in use by us here in Chicago. Yes, Chicago. Okay. And this army, I want to, one last question on this army of contact tracers. What happens if there isn't a second wave? Uh, yeah. What sort of will this group of new hires be doing? Oh, yeah. So this has been another huge part of our planning, right? Like my job, and I I often talk about this, but really we see our job at the health department very much as taking care of the immediate issue, but also making sure we're thinking three months and six months and two years down the line. And so we've thought a lot about if we're lucky enough that we're not having a big surge, what role these folks will play in terms of some of the community education and outreach. Uh, There's a lot of work that's happening sort of alongside the contact tracing with resource coordination. And so there will be work 
for example, to do mapping of neighborhood assets and understanding if people have housing needs or food needs or, you know, whatever is coming up, that we're doing a better job even as a city of understanding what those social services can look like, how those can all be linked together kind of into a, a resource hub. And that, again, is something that we're very much hoping will outlive COVID. So we have a lot of potential plans for these folks if we're lucky enough to, you know, not be in a space where there's major needs for contact tracing. But first and foremost um, is getting everybody trained up and knowing that we've got extra capacity to be able to handle any search that may come. I want to pivot away from contact tracing and get to the uh, news or potential news later today that you're going to be updating Chicago's quarantine travel list, uh, adding new states potentially or deleting other states. What extent um, do you feel like it's been effective in preventing travelers from going out and about if they're returning from a state that has high high COVID cases? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I actually, to be honest, I think it's one of the most effective things that we've done in terms of education and having people really think about COVID in a way that extends beyond sort of the walls of Chicago. Certainly where we look at what has driven questions and traffic to our website and, uh, and, and interest from businesses and interest from, you know, the many, many stakeholders here, people have taken this seriously. Has it stopped travel? No, it has not. Do we know that every single person who has returned has necessarily quarantined? No, but it has definitely decreased travel and importantly, I think, made people aware that there are parts of the country that, depending what's what's happening, are not a good place to be traveling from a COVID perspective. And so I, I think it's been extremely effective, honestly, um, in terms of raising that awareness. It's made um, our messaging and even just, the you know, I, I look every day at what kind of questions are we getting through the hotline? What are we hearing from businesses? Um, and it has absolutely impacted uh, travel plans for people. Um, it's absolutely impacted people's sort of business decision travel plans. I only want to limit this when the risk is high and we're quick to take states off the list as soon as they're able to get things under control. We'll be announcing some of that a little bit later today. But places where COVID is just doing really poorly, those are not places I want people traveling um, and particularly bringing that risk back to Chicago. So I think it's been very effective. You mentioned yesterday during your press conference about Wisconsin that you guys are monitoring Wisconsin very closely. It was on and then it came off, potentially could go back on. Would, are you still mm-hmm. kind of in a wait and see with Wisconsin? Yeah, I think, you know, we certainly are very, very concerned. There's been a big, big spike in Wisconsin just over this last week. Um, I think, you know, the thought is we want to make sure, especially for a bordering state, that people people do have the adequate time to plan there. Uh, and we want to make sure that this spike is something that isn't just kind of a one-off. You, you may remember back a couple of weeks ago, we had seen a, a spike in Indiana that really didn't last and so didn't end up needing to put them on the list. But the bottom line is, even if they don't go on the formal quarantine list this week, Wisconsin is one of the, the the top five states in terms of cases per population and absolutely surging um, across the whole state in terms of number of cases, percent positivity. And, you know, even if it's not formally on the quarantine list this week, uh, really advising people to, to not be traveling to Wisconsin um, if they're able to avoid it. And we'll keep an eye. Hopefully they can get it under control and not need to go on the list. But we felt like it was important to signal that concern strongly this week. All right. Well, we'll we'll keep an eye out for your announcements at one o'clock today. Um, I also wanted to talk to you last week. We got some news about Mercy Hospital in Bronzeville announcing it would be closing. I'm wondering what you think about that decision and if you have concerns about the city's safety net hospitals. Yeah. So obviously we, we always have concerns where we see 
particularly in safety net facilities and in parts of the city where we worry about healthcare access, where we see some of that, um, you know, where we see the loss of some of that access. It's obviously a, a concern. Uh, you know, I was very, very hopeful last year when a number of these institutions had put together a proposal to really join forces and try to think about um, financial viability in terms of, uh, you know, combining efforts that that was going to actually go through this year, and uh, we, we, were, we were sad to see that that didn't happen. You know, we have a lot of changing demographics and population in Chicago. You know, as a health department, we don't regulate hospitals. We don't fund hospitals. We certainly work to support, right, and make sure that communication is good across hospitals. But we will remain very focused, regardless of what happens in the long term there, on making sure that people who live in that community area are able to access uh, the medical care that, that everybody needs, regardless of where they live in Chicago. Yeah. You mentioned the city isn't a specific necessarily funder of any of these hospitals, but what can the city do to help safety net hospitals that are struggling or were struggling financially before the coronavirus pandemic? All things related to hospitals in terms of decisions on opening and closing and regulating and licensing, all of that is at the state rather than the city level. But certainly we work to make sure that we're supporting where there are particular programs, for example, or where we're able to like disproportionately help in some of those settings, we'll do it. So if you take COVID, yes, we made PPE available across all of our hospitals, but our safety net hospitals really receive more of that in the end when you look at sort of per patient um, and what some of that looks like. We know that they struggle more financially. Uh, We also really work um, when we're thinking about programming. We prioritize uh, safety net hospitals when we're partnering there, whether that's some of for example, we're working on some universal home visiting programs after um, after babies are born, and both in terms of population that would go to safety net hospitals, but also thinking about how can we better make sure that we're in support. Um, we certainly work closely with with our safety nets. So I don't separate in my mind, like, you know, here are the big academics and here are the safety nets and one, you know, here's one approach for one and one for the other. But always, as we're thinking about our whole healthcare enterprise, I'm very conscious of the different populations, the different funding structures, uh, and the different ways in which our hospitals are situated in Chicago and making sure that, um, that benefits that we see or things that we're learning potentially in some of the other centers are transferring across the whole system. So I think we've, we've, COVID has been good for that here in Chicago, I think, um, where uh, we've, I think, collectively across all of our hospitals thought a lot about sharing practices, transferring patients, sharing resources, making sure that we are thinking about all of Chicago as sort of one hospital, if you will, where people need that higher level of care. And the safety nets has been absolutely central to that conversation. Right. Now, last week, there was also news that a clinical trial for one of the vaccines in development had been paused uh, with a participant who had a severe health reaction. And there were um, folks who, you know, signed on to a statement saying, you know, they're concerned about the information being limited, limited coming from these pharmaceutical companies. Do you (laughs) believe there's enough information getting out about how the development of the vaccines are, uh, are working? And do you have any concerns about a vaccine being rushed? Or or when, when, in your expert opinion, do you think one might be available? My main goal is to make sure that before any vaccine is approved, appropriate phase three trials are complete. And that means that they are complete um, as, as evaluated by what's called a data safety monitoring board. 
that is set up separate from the company, separate from the researchers. Their whole job is to look at the data within these large phase three trials and to evaluate, you know, has this vaccine been proven to be, you know, safe in the populations in which it's been tested? Has it been proven to be effective in the populations in which it's been tested? Um, I do not see a world, frankly, where that will be done in the next month or two. I do think if these trials go well, we're likely to probably see the first vaccine or vaccines getting some approval near the end of the calendar year or early next year. But look, like both of the the major vaccines that are um, under trial, the the first two in the U.S., they're both two-dose vaccines. You have to take the two doses one month apart from each other. It's another two weeks after that before you're even considered to have had the immunity from the vaccine. So that's six weeks right there. And then you need to follow people forward. And to know whether a vaccine is effective, you need to follow the people who have gotten the actual vaccine um, and then compare them to the people who have gotten the placebo. So a certain number of people actually need to get COVID for you to know, and not not just get COVID, but get seriously ill with COVID. That's the end point. Mm -hmm. And so you can't rush that. That just takes the time that it takes to give people the vaccine, to follow them up. I was pleased to see in a lot of ways the news, for example, that the trial is being paused. It's not unusual for that to happen, but I think it gives some clarity to the public about how these trials work. And even if you have, you know, one potential reaction that could be related to the vaccine, you pause and you take a look at everything. And did this person get vaccine or placebo? Um, Was there another explanation? Is this suggestive of something that could actually be a level of concern at the population? That's the kind of thing where a decision will not be made to approve a vaccine. And the companies themselves The last thing a company wants is to get a vaccine approved that turns out to not be safe, right? Like that is something that would be devastating for them, not just for that vaccine, but for the whole company. So I'm confident, I really am, in the ways that we develop um, vaccines in the phase one, two, and three trials. And uh, I think we will get appropriate information out. And by the time I am putting a vaccine in my arm or recommending it for Chicago, we'll have full phase three trials that are done uh, in the standard way. And I'll feel very confident in that. Well, there you have it. That's Commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, Dr. Allison Arwady. Dr. Arwady, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. For the latest and most accurate news and conversations around the COVID-19 pandemic, tune to 91.5 FM in Chicago, go to WBEZ.org, or tell your smart speaker to play WBEZ. I'm Becky Vivi. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow for more Reset from WBEZ Chicago. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.